<clears throat> well, this morning we're going to take a, a break from the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. There's a reason uh, for this, which you will learn as we go. Uh, Ephesians, chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 6. This is the word of God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. Well, before we uh, consider this passage this morning, we're going to pray. I to ask that you just take a moment uh, individually to bow before the Lord. Uh, you know the, the variety of things that are going on in your life, and you know what, brings, what frame of mind uh, you have when you come here this morning. But uh, wherever we're coming from, uh, the Lord knows. The Lord is able to meet us where we are, to give us what we need. Just take a moment individually to pray and ask for the Lord's special touch in your life this morning. And then after a moment or two, I'll lead us together. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Father, we thank you for giving us your son. We thank you that he loves us, that he loves us to the extent of dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sins so that we can live forever with you, reconciled and redeemed, Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you give us. Uh, we thank you for the blessings that you shower upon us in Jesus Christ. That we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see in a clearer way how much you truly do love us. And then by empathetic extension, allow us to see that you love us others just as much 
Lord, help us to recognize that that all of those who are bought by the blood of Christ are truly one family and ought to act like it. Even when there are disagreement, even when there are different perspectives and views and opinions on certain things, help us to draw on the love you have for all of our brothers and sisters and help us to love them too in the same way that you do. Because it is by this that people will know we belong to you, by our love for one another. So increase it and purify it. Make it holy and vibrant, pulsating and real. And help us to be a place that reflects the deep, deep love of Jesus, personally experienced, but also experienced corporately as a family. For we ask it in the name of the one who loves us. Amen. Now, uh, people who study Ephesians know that Ephesians 4 begins to apply theology and doctrine that Paul outlines in the first three chapters. So when he starts and says, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore, or then, it's a logically connect, it's a, it's a logical causal connection. So you're supposed to be aware of what he has written in the first three chapters before you start reading about therefores and thens. Okay? This is application. So what we're going to do with hyperspeed is I'm tempted to go through the first three chapters. And as much as that would be doubtlessly a delight for you, I'm going to forbear and just do the first few verses of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is actually one sentence in Greek. Uh, Paul's writing in Greek, this is one sentence. It's 202 words. Uh, in terms of English conventions, it's a bit of a run-on. Uh, but in terms of Paul, he's just overflowing. These words are pouring out of him. And they all come under what's called the dominant clause, which is in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything Paul says in this 202-word sentence is under the heading of praise God. Everything he says is a reason for you to praise God. Now, fascinatingly, one of the things that he's going to be talking about are things like God's election, predestination, etc. Which just goes to show that in our church circles... When we talk about things like free will and God's sovereignty, human responsibility and election and predestination, oftentimes those discussions do not end, they do not begin or end or anywhere in between have anything to do with praising God. But when Paul talks about these things, there are reason to praise God. So things that I tell my students at the college uh, where they, or they spend their time uh, bickering about these sorts of theological things. You know, I, I tell them that, that if, if I had my way, I would forbid any discussions on these topics unless it was in the atmosphere of praise. We can interpret these things differently, but unless you're praising God, you've misunderstood the whole point of these things. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. You want a reason to praise God? Here's one. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is not one single spiritual blessing in all of the heavenly realms that is not yours if you are in Jesus Christ. 
If you are united with Christ by faith, then every blessing there is that God has in the spiritual realms is already yours by virtue of the fact that Christ has every spiritual blessing. There's nothing Christ lacks. But you're in him. You're in the locus of maximal blessing. And so there's nothing that God is going to withhold from you in a salvation sense. It's all yours because it's all in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours because it's in Christ. Now that is actually a reason to praise. Praise God that this is true. And then Paul's going to start enumerating some of them. Well, for example, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That is, you have been chosen by God to be in Jesus Christ, not just at some point in your life, not just when you were conceived, not just after Adam and Eve were created and God saw sort of the unfolding of the genetic map of the human race. Before God said, let there be light, he had envisioned you saved and redeemed and blessed in his son. From eternity to eternity, you have been in Christ. Why? To be holy and blameless in his sight. You as a sinner, defiled and unclean, in Jesus, in the sight of God, which is the only sight that matters, are radiant and pure, spotless and without blame. Why? Because Jesus is radiant and pure, spotless and without blame, and you're hidden in him. All of his merit is covering you. You are in Christ. So when God looks at you, through his son, he says, there is someone who is holy. There is someone who is blameless in my sight. The God who knows everything. The God who is omniscient. The God who, whose gaze he can pierce through anything. He's the one who says, before I said, let there be light, I wanted you to be holy and pure and blameless in my sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So another blessing is this. You've been predestined. For what? Well, predestination is for a purpose. It's for adoption. God decided he wanted you to be his own child. God decided he wanted to, to set your destiny, that you were going to be brought into his family, that everyone in Christ is going to be brought into his family, not just legally purified, not, not just uh, legally justified, but actually relationally loved and cherished and brought into his family. Not merely holy and blameless, but adopted so that they actually belong to God. He is their father through creation and through adoption. This was in accordance with his pleasure. That is, in other words, if you want to know why would God do this, the only answer is he wanted to. There is never any other reason given in Scripture. Why would God save you, desire for you to be part of his family, there is no answer ever given except it was what he wanted to do. It was according to his pleasure and will. He wanted to make you. He wanted to love you. He wanted to adopt you. And to do so, he had to save you. So he did. In him, we have redemption through his blood. We are purchased out of slavery through the price of the blood of Christ. We have the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In other words, here's the fundamental problem, our alienation with God because of our sin. And God takes care of it. 
I mean, salvation is of the Lord. There is nothing at all that we contribute to our salvation. Nothing. Well, actually, well, that's not quite true. What we contribute to our salvation is our sin. That is, we contribute the problem. We contribute what we need to be saved from and out of. And then God unilaterally acts to send his son into the world to provide salvation, to provide atonement according to his pleasure and will. But it is all because of the grace and mercy of God. It, 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 is, it is completely gratuitous that God acts this way. It, it is literally a pure gift of grace. There is no desert or merit in us at all. In fact, there's a lot of demerit. Not only do we not deserve salvation, we deserve quite the opposite. But God gives us grace out of the riches of his grace. He lavishes grace upon us. That is, he's not poor, and he's not stingy. He's rich in grace, and he pours it out lavishly and abundantly. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, God has also given you the supernatural gift of knowledge to see the truth of the gospel. If you see the truth of the gospel, it is not because you're more clever than your neighbor who doesn't believe. If you see the beauty of Jesus Christ, it's not because somehow you're more moral than people of other religions, naturally. If you see the beauty of Jesus Christ, if you see the plan of salvation, and it clicks with you and it resonates with you, it's because God has poured out upon you in his grace the wisdom and understanding spiritually to see these things. I'm sure you've noticed this, but there are a lot of people in the world who do not believe in Jesus who are an awful lot smarter than we are. I mean, I should say, than I am, bracketing you out of that. Sorry for including you in that boat. Uh, not you, but me. And you look around and, and you go, well, why is it? And, and there are people who just are, are, are a lot nicer than some people you find in the church. There are people, you just go, well, what is it? What makes the difference? Well, it's not you. It's God in grace, just lavishing wisdom and, and understanding upon you. These things are spiritually discerned. You need grace to see it. If you see it, it's just God has already been at work in your life, leading you to himself, drawing you to himself, opening your eyes so that you can see. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It's pretty categorical. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So you're, you're, the reason, one of the reasons you're saved is just because you, your salvation will result in praise being given to God. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You've been given the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a down payment, as a legal guarantee that you're going to get all of it. You, you, don't, you haven't experienced the fullness of all of it yet. Every spiritual blessing is yours, yes. But it awaits the consummation to experience subjectively all that is ours already objectively in Jesus. And that will happen one day. 
when the Lord returns, when, when we are united with our resurrection body, we will experience the fullness. But it's already guaranteed. If you are in Christ, that end point is guaranteed because the Spirit is the down payment who seals the deal. There's no doubt about it because you've been given the Spirit and you're God's special possession. This is actually a very unique word that's used here. But it's sort of like it's, it's the one thing you would treasure. You know, if, if your home was on fire, what, what's the one thing you would grab? That's what we are to God. The one thing that God treasures as his very own possession is the church. God is maximally satisfied in, in his internal Trinitarian relations. He doesn't need anything. He has no lack. And yet he decides to create literally out of nothing a world and people who will fall into sin, yes, but who through his son he will redeem as his very own possession. I mean, what do you what do you get God for Christmas? I mean, you think you have someone in your life who's hard to buy for. <laughs> so someone who has everything. Well, God doesn't need anything at all. And yet he creates a church. That's what he wants. The one thing God decides to have as his own special possession is the church of Jesus Christ. And so he has to make it. Because it doesn't exist. He's the only thing that exists. So he makes it. And the only way he can make it is through the atoning death of his son. Now, Paul says, if you just think about that a little bit, you'll praise God. As a prisoner for the Lord then, now look, just off to the side, there's an awful lot more in chapter 2 and 3 that we didn't talk about too. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, strong language, I exhort you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, what's the calling I've received? The first three chapters tell you. In other words, your life is to be worthy of God choosing you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Your life is to be worth God redeeming you through the blood of his son and providing you with a forgiveness for your sins. Your life is to be worth predestination to adoption. Your life is to be worth all of the grace God has lavished upon you. All of the wisdom and understanding to perceive the truth of the gospel. Your life is to be worth that. Your life is to be worth every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that you've been given. Your life is to be worth being sealed by the Holy Spirit. The language Paul uses, the phrase he uses is literally, your life is to be bringing up the beam of the scale. Think of its market imagery. We don't use scales like this. Um, but you think about um, statues of justice. Right? Sword in one hand, blindfolded because justice is supposed to be blind. Uh, it's not quite how it usually works. But uh, and, and, a, and a scale on the other, in the other hand, the two pans. 
Paul says your life is to be literally bringing up the beam of the scale, which means this. You take all of the blessings and reality of the gospel and you put it on one side of the scale. And you put your life on the other side of the scale. And they're supposed to balance. All of the weight of everything God has done for you goes on one side. And then you put your life on the other side. And it's supposed to bring up the pan of the scale. Your life is to show the world an equal reflection of the weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, how do you do that? Well, because the calling is pretty immense, it's pretty weighty, you would think you have to do something really big to, to bring up that pan of the scale. So, you know, maybe go and, and be a missionary. Like a good one, not a lousy one. Like, you know, because there are some who don't do that much. You know, you go and you do something big. Or, or give lots and lots and lots of money away. Or pray eight hours a day. Or maybe if you're really lucky, you can be a martyr. Well, I give lots of money away and I pray 16 hours a day. And yet, still, my life doesn't seem to be equal to what God has given us. So what do you do? Can you ever do enough to bring up the pan of the scale? No, you never can. But what's fascinating is that Paul doesn't say, so here's what a worthy life looks like. Do this and this and this and this and this. The very first thing he says is shockingly counterintuitive, but actually makes perfect sense in terms of gospel logic. If you want to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received, be Completely humble. That's what he says. I was thinking, like, did you lose your train of thought? Like we're talking about like bringing up the pan of the scale. You're talking about a life that's equal to the gospel. You're talking about a life that's equal to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And the first thing you say is be completely humble. And yet as we've been seeing in Isaiah, pride is the utter denial of the gospel. Who are we? Not just finite, but sinful. Who are we to be arrogant? If everything we have received, which is positive, is a gift of God's grace, where do we get off being full of ourselves in the presence of God or one another? Be humble, completely humble and gentle. These are not, this is not a job description. So if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, then go out and do these things. It's a character description. You're supposed to have certain virtues. Starting with humility. Starting with gentleness. Humility and gentleness are not things that are prized in our world today. It's not how you get ahead. Humility was actually considered a vice in the Roman world, in the Greco-Roman world, in which Paul's writing. You know, in the Greco-Roman world, through the Roman manifestation, the idea was you go out and you dominate. 
You know, Nietzsche draws on this, right? Uh, looking back at sort of the glory of Rome was their, their, their will to power express itself in domination, not wheedling. And, and so you go out and you, you just put people down. You, you, you assert yourself. Look out for number one. You get ahead before someone else does. You have to pull someone down from the ladder so you can climb up, and that's what success means. You just take care of yourself. Look out for number one. And, and humility was considered a horrible thing. Paul says, no, it's, it's not a horrible thing. It's the response to the gospel. You want to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The first thing you, you, you engage in is the recognition of who you are before God. And if that doesn't humble you, you haven't understood the gospel. Be humble. Be gentle. This is not weakness. But it's channeled moral strength. It, it, it's a principled decision. That I will honor someone above myself. I will honor someone else above my desires. I will put someone else first. Not because I can't exert force in this situation, but I will choose not to. I will choose to channel strength in service, not lordship. I will choose to put someone else ahead of myself. Humble and gentle. Be patient. Patience here means to be able to be provoked at great length without sort of losing your temper, without flying into a rage, to be able to put up with a lot of exasperating behavior. Be patient. Humble, gentle, patient. That's how you start balancing out the gospel. Bearing with one another in love. These are the kinds of comments that Paul makes, which really actually makes me love Paul. He says, look, in the church, if you're going to represent the gospel well, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to put up with people. Bearing with one another, with, with one another in love. That's what you're going to do. The only reason, he says, bearing with one another in love is precisely because there are people who are going to bother you. You don't say, look, everyone's going to get along wonderfully. Just bear with it. You, you don't use that language unless there's problems. Uh, you don't use that language unless people bother you. You don't use that language unless there's sometimes cross-purposes and different agendas. Bearing with one another in love. So you want to balance out the gospel blessings you've received, one of the ways that you do that is you recognize different people who have different perspectives and you put up with it and you love them. Because you can put up with things and be bitter. No, you, you bear with one another in love. Which actually, if you think about it, is really what God has done for us. That's why there's a gospel. Is God patient with us? Does God put up with us in love? Absolutely. So what we're doing is we're beginning to reflect, hopefully in virtue, the sorts of characteristics that God himself has when He, in the way that he treats us. That's what we're trying to do. To live a life worthy of the calling we've received is to be like the one who has called us and his son, Jesus Christ. Make every effort. That's a very strong language. You need to work at this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
there's objective unity in the church. The Spirit has made this one. There is unity. Now, you need to make every effort to keep it. You need to work really hard, subjectively, to maintain this objective unity. That's your job. The unity is provided by the Spirit. It's already there. You can't make unity in the church, but you can destroy it. The Spirit makes the unity. Your job is to keep it. Your job isn't to create it. Your job is not to ruin it. Make every, make sure you work hard in the church not to be divisive. You work hard in the church not to ruin what the Spirit has put together. That's your job. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? There is one body. There's only one church in God's sight. I'm going I'm to resist. I'm going to resist. Am I? It's interesting. I'm not sure if I am. I, I choose to resist for now, meaning the next 30 seconds, making comments about the proliferation of denominations and local churches in a city like ours. Yes, indeed. There's only one church. There's only one body. Because there's only one spirit. There's one bride of Christ. There's one Holy Spirit who makes the bride of Christ. This is unity. There is only, you are called to one hope. That is, Christians don't have different hopes. There's one eschatological goal. There's one place we're headed in terms of consummation of redemption. There's one place we're going in terms of the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. That's where we're going. There aren't multiple hopes. There's one hope. There's one thing. There's one plan of God. And if we're included in that plan, we, we don't have a plurality of hopes. We have one. This is what God has given us. This is our hope, that we are in Jesus Christ, and he is bringing all things together in the way that he wants. That's our hope. There's one Lord. There's only one Jesus. There, 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 there aren't a plurality of saviors. As much as our world wants there to be, there's only one. There's only one King of kings and Lord of lords. The reality is the universe is not a democracy. There's one Lord. There's only one Savior. There's one head of the church. There's one faith. That is... Either in terms of commitment, there's only, we, there's only, the only way to be saved is to trust in this one Lord, or in terms of deliverance of body of truth, that is, keep the faith. There's only one faith. There's only one creed for the church, ultimately. There's only one truth for the church, ultimately. There's only one way to appropriate it, depending on how you want to take one faith. There's only one baptism. That's interesting. Uh, will just suffice it to say this, that in this time that Paul is writing, baptism was, as ought to be today, 
the sign of entry into the new covenant community, which is the church. That is, if you are part of the church, then you receive baptism as the sign of belonging to this covenant group. You are part of the new covenant community, so you are baptized as, as a sign of union with Jesus. And so there's only one baptism. There's only one covenant sign. You know, we, we can bicker, and Christians do. Uh, you know, let's use the word disagree. That's uh, more neutral. Christians disagree about whether or who the right subject of baptism is. Should infants be baptized or only believers? Christians disagree about mode of baptism, sprinkling, pouring, full immersion, whatever, and all kinds of different configurations. All kinds of special circumstances, too. But there is only one baptism. Because what baptism is, there's only one. Sign of belonging to Jesus Christ. The sign of belonging to the covenant community of God. There's only one. And there's only one God. There's only one Father of all of God's children. Who is over all and through all and in all. Now interestingly enough, verses 7 through 13, which I'm not going to say anything about except this, goes on to talk about diversity though. But in the church, there's a lot of diversity, a lot of different gifts God has given, different roles God has assigned. So we're not just carving copies of each other. So, but the diversity is maintained by this unity. Before you start talking about diversity, you've already talked about all of the fundamental things that unite us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be humble, gentle, patient. Bear with one another in love. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There's a lot of ones there. There's an awful lot of unity in the church that God has provided. Now, Wednesday evening, we have a business meeting to vote on the following motion. That Crestwick Baptist Church allow qualified men and women to serve as deacons. That's the motion that we will be voting on on Wednesday. If you want to know the right way to vote, I'll be happy to tell you after. I'm not going to lobby for one position now. I'm going to insist on this, that it is a disgrace to the gospel if that meeting is not conducted with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. If I mean, there will be an outcome of the vote, Next week, Lord willing, one week from today, we will celebrate communion together. How we interact on Wednesday is not irrelevant for that. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. That's how our lives will reflect the worth of the calling we have received. And you'll have to bear with other people because, regrettably, on Wednesday, not everyone is going to be as wise as you are. Doubtless, not everyone will be as godly and mature as you are. 
Not everyone here reads the Bible with the same profound spiritual insight as you do, which means the vote is not likely to be unanimous. But one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, question is, does all of this God-given unity get rejected on the basis of having women deacons or not? I can't imagine that Paul would write this section and then have an asterisk and say, but of course, if the church decides to have women deacons, you should split the church can't possibly imagine that. Yes, yes, yes. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Gospel in Christ, spirit, peace, unity. You know, humility, gentleness, patience, love. But if the vote doesn't go my way, I'm out of here. Paul would endorse that. I just don't think you can read the text and think that, actually. I just don't think it's possible to read what God has done for us in calling us with Christ. And to think that all of a sudden, these are the kinds of issues that somehow exempt us from these sorts of virtues. It can't possibly work that way. It just can't. So, on Wednesday, we will meet, we will gather. We'll discuss, maybe, maybe we don't need to at this point. Um, we'll vote. And a week from now, we'll all show up together. We'll all have the communion elements before us. And we'll all recognize that there is unity in what Christ has done for us. Giving his body, shedding his blood, so that we who were sinners can be saved, redeemed, forgiven, and adopted as the children of God. Part of the enormous problem in our churches, if I may be so bold, not normally bold, I may as well say something bold now. Part of the enormous problem in our churches is that we simply, so often, focus on the minor things where we disagree. When if you just locate the disagreement in the wider context of all that we share, it becomes not insignificant, but, but just not, not nearly important enough to start getting angry with people about. No, no, it's not nearly important enough to, to, to sort of throw out the ultimatum. My way or I'm gone. Really? Over this? Do, do, do you really read this and say, Ephesians 4, clearly these six verses don't apply if the church doesn't use the Bible translation you like. There are people who will leave churches if the church doesn't use the Bible translation they favor. 
Ephesians 4 somehow doesn't apply if we don't like the style of music. Regrettably, my understanding, I say this carefully, my, my understanding is that even in the history of this church, things like music style and preferences and sometimes eclipsed virtue and unity. As, as if a life worthy of the gospel is defined by number of hymns versus contemporary songs and not by personal virtue. Bear with one another in love, unless they don't want all the hymns you do. It's just unthinkable. And yet you don't, you don't need to think it because it happens all the time. You can just go see it. So, in some ways, these sorts of things, I think, are not not even so much about the decision made, but how the decision was made. The attitudes behind the decision. The way people treat, the way we treat each other in making this decision. Those are the things that I think matter maximally to God. Not that the decision itself isn't important, I think it is. But I'd rather... I'd rather be my, be mistaken in how I vote than be an arrogant jerk who's loveless to those who disagree with me. I think that is far worse in God's sight than making a mistake, sincerely thinking this is the right thing to do and being wrong. We know for sure that certain ways of talking to each other, certain attitudes, etc., are a denial of the gospel. So whatever it is, let's make sure we don't do that. If there's going to be any lack of love at the meeting, how about this? It doesn't come from you. If there's going to be a church split over this, how about this? You don't split. Because if we all just do that, then everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay because we love each other. If we actually love each other, love can get over an issue like this, right? It's a pretty anemic love that can't. So let's love each other deeply. Let's do this. Let's be a church that's spiritually mature enough to maintain unity even when there's difference of opinion and diversity on secondary and tertiary issues. If we can do that, we might actually demonstrate that Crestwick Baptist Church is a church that's growing in the gospel. I think we're ready for that. Maybe in past history, the church always hasn't been. But surely the church has grown. Surely. On a positive note, it was mentioned in the announcements very ably. Rick does a very good job. See how see how pleasant I can be. Uh, Rick, Rick does a very good job uh, with announcements and, and mentions that that in God's grace, there are more. The church is growing numerically. It's wonderful. Great, great. It's just a question for you. 
in terms of unity and all of the rest, for those of you who have been here for a couple of years, if the church has been growing numerically over the last number of months, how many conversations have you had here on a Sunday morning with people that you don't know? Because obviously there's a lot of new people coming. So how many new people have you talked to? Part of our difficulty is that we just sort of rotate in the circles that we're familiar with all the time. But if there really is one, if there's all of this unity, it's a unity not just for the people you've known for a long time, or the people you're most comfortable with. It's a unity imposed by the Spirit on us all. So, go and find someone you don't know as well and talk to them. Do that. That's one of the ways you begin to cultivate actual subjective unity in the church. The objective unity is given. Maintain it. Deepen it. Enrich it. Cultivate it. Let's make sure that if there are people who have only been here for six months or 12 months, they've been well-received and well-loved by those who have been here longer. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.